Hey, thanks for showing up. Whether you're watching let the live stream or on demand, welcome to you wherever you are and wherever you are watching from. Just a reminder, like we had in the announcement video right there, on September 6th at 9 a.m., if you are so inclined, uh, I am going to be doing the message live at Element. Uh, if we can't meet inside, we do it underneath that little pergola right outside. Uh, after the message, you can ask some questions. I might ask you some questions, see what that looks like, see how it feels. But again, we will be doing the full live live stream as well for the three services and on demand. So don't feel like you have to come, especially if you have kids and you're like, how am I going to watch my kids and all that? Well, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to. You can watch the live stream like normal, but if you would like to, again, September 6th, 9 a.m., we'll do the message live, and if more people show up, we can do a couple services like that, but we'll see how it goes in the midst of all that. And also, like last week, today, we're trying to do this thing where we're helping parents and people out who, about 15 minutes into the message, maybe your kids go a little crazy and stuff, we're going to put one slide up on the screen, and it's going to cover everything. You can hit pause there, maybe journal an answer to the couple questions that are on there, and then come back when you get finished doing what you're doing, and hit play, and you can keep going. And if you don't need to do that, we're just going to talk right through it. But it gives a good place for you to stop and kind of check out where we are. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. In Uversion, you'll click on More and then Events. And if you're within our local area, we will come up by GPS in your smart device. If you are not in our local area, you can type in 93455, and we'll come up that way. And then click on Element and you know Axe, where we're at. And then we will kind of go through the rest of everything we go through. You'll get the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. And if you are so inclined, you can stand for the reading of God's Word. We show respect for God's Word that way. But this is the reading of God's Word. This is Acts 24, verse 24. And it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take and move us as a people to understand what it means to speak about faith in who you are and trust in the work that you are doing and continue to do in our lives. That we would find great hope in what you do in us and we'd be able to speak of that in a way that connects with those around us because of your goodness and your grace. Amen. And then we'll have a seat if you're standing or if you're still sitting. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, I was thinking a little bit about how long we spend in books of the Bible at Element. Like eight years ago, we went through the book of Genesis, and it was essentially a year and a half. And I was thinking about going through the book of Acts that we're in right now. We had part one about four and a half years ago. This is part two. And if you add them both together when we're done, it's going to be longer than Genesis actually was. And to be fair, we have split it up into two parts, but this is part two. And if you're keeping track, we have about 10 weeks left after this week. So you got to get a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Again, this is week 30. Uh, we are mostly following at this point the Apostle Paul as he is arrested, as he is in jail. Uh, the first part of Acts part 2 kind of followed him around on his missionary journeys, but now again he's in jail. You're going to go from trial to trial and different people looking at him and judging his case to see where he goes. Now Paul is fit, sitting in the governor's house, in a guy called Felix's house. And I gave you some history about Felix last week, but Felix is a guy who's really in life for himself and making his boss, whose name is Caesar, look good. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, if you're ready to do that. Uh, 
First off, I do not envy Felix. Uh, Felix's name essentially means happy. His name's like Mr. Happy, but that's not why I don't envy him. I don't envy him because he's in a really tight spot with where he's at. Uh, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem are under his ultimate control, but even with that, they still have the right as aristocrats, which means they're probably Roman citizens, to protest against him all the way to Rome. This has actually happened throughout the history of the Roman Empire, that there are certain people who are ruled by certain governors who would go and bring charges against their governor for maladministration. And so Felix might be just a little worried that that might happen to him. Uh, There's several instances of this in the hundred years previous to Felix. Also, if Felix wants to dismiss Paul's stupid case, uh, he probably can't really do that because these people would give him just a gigantic headache as they protested in Jerusalem and Caesarea and then all the way to Rome. On the other hand, though, it's not in his best interest to keep a Roman citizen in jail for a very long time without any charges. And Paul knows his legal rights many times better than some of the lawyers who are accusing him of certain things. Paul's speeches show this, that he knows the Roman law inside and out. So suffice to say, the matter is very complex for Felix. So what Felix now does is he slows everything way, way down. He almost stops them dead. Last week we read Acts 24, verse 2. It says, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that's Christianity, put them off, that's the the, uh, Jewish ruling council, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And what he does is he takes the high priest and that whole entourage with him and sends them all back to Jerusalem and says, you know, when Lysias, Claudius Lysias, the Tribune comes down, then we'll talk about that. But Lysias never comes down. And most commentators believe that Felix had no intention of ever having him come down. He just wanted to get rid of these guys. But that means Felix is now left with this very famous Roman prisoner named Paul on his hands. And this is not like America, where you have a right to a speedy trial. Because in Roman law, imprisonment wasn't even considered punishment. It was simply a way of holding on to somebody while you figured out what to do with them. Or really, sometimes just keep them from being a nuisance. And so there is a danger that Paul himself could complain about Felix all the way to Rome. But Felix has met Paul. He's pretty sure Paul's a reasonable guy. And Paul is probably not going to do that. So instead, what he does is he gives Paul a measure of freedom and he lets his friends start to visit him. Acts 24 verse 23 says, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, you may not see how important that is, but in the Roman system, it didn't provide anything if you were in jail as a prisoner. And this means that people had to bring your food and whatever sustenance you needed to stay alive, or you would starve in jail. And so, and so Felix allows Paul's friends to actually keep him alive. And then after this, Felix will start to meet with Paul, probably in one sense to make Paul feel like, hey, I'm listening, I'm doing something, don't complain about me to Rome. But on the other hand, you'll read that where Felix finds out that Paul has brought money to the church in Jerusalem, so he's hoping that Paul would give him a bribe as well. All these things are going on in the midst of this. But there's one thing I want to spend all of our time talking about today. So I'm going to read the section we're in. Uh, It's going to finish out chapter 24. It's four verses, and it will cover two years. 
Two years and four verses. So here we go. Acts 24, verses 24 to 27 says this. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and had him uh, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When Two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And where I really want to go with you today and what we talk about is what Paul talks about to Felix and Drusilla, where it says he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. At this point in Paul's life, he probably feels like he has nothing to lose because God said, you're going to testify about me in the city of Rome. When Paul first goes to Jerusalem, most people think that they assumed he thought he was going to die there. Everyone gave him warnings that the Spirit of God said, this is what's going to happen to you while you're there. So it seems he thought that Jerusalem really was going to be his end. But instead of being his end, he gets beat up, wrapped up in chains, and gets thrown in jail. And then Jesus shows up and tells him the plan. You're going to testify about me in Rome. Now think about if Jesus came to you and said that to you. You're going to testify about me in Rome. You probably think, well, that's sweet. I've never been to Rome. That sounds like a lot of fun. But then it's, but you'll get beat up and thrown in jail along the way, and that's how you'll stay till you get to Rome. It's like, well, that doesn't sound as fun. But Paul, at this point, he is going for it. He knows what God's plan is for his life, so he steps into all of it. And you have to understand, this is not a vacation for Paul. This isn't like two years at Club Felix. It's got to be frustrating for him. Paul does write his prison epistles in the midst of that, but it's got to be frustrating because Paul is dealing with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Imagine having a conversation you cannot get out of for two years with the most annoying people you know. Like loud, they think they know everything. You ever met a man or a woman like that? Someone who thinks they know everything about life and the more drinks they get in them, they just the louder they get. Yeah, that's Felix and Drusilla. They leave a life that have a, has a wake of bodies all around them and never even notice it. And if you don't know a person like that, honestly, it just might be you. FYI, friendly minor from the Apostle Paul, don't shoot the messenger. One commentator says this, Paul's example shows us how to share the word, and the example of Felix and Drusilla shows us how not to receive the word, and the word there means the word of God. So let me give you some background. I gave you some a little bit last week, but I told you that Felix, and his name is actually Antonius Felix, was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to be the governor of a Roman province. But he really didn't earn it. So when he's a child, he and his brother Paulus, they are freed from slavery by Antonia. Antonia is the mother of the future Caesar Claudius, hence why Felix takes his name as Antonius Felix. Now, as they grow up, Paulus becomes very close friends with Claudius to the point when Claudius becomes emperor. Paulus says, hey, would you give my brother the governorship of, of some place? And I don't know if Claudius is being funny, but said, sure, we'll give him Palestine because that place is really easy to take care of. During Felix's governorship, there are insurrections and anarchy and increases throughout the region because of his brutality. The historian Josephus says that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings. The Roman historian Tacitus calls him a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Antonius Felix was an unscrupulous, brutal, scheming politician. And so what does Paul talk to him about? He talks to him about, about self-control, the coming judgment, and righteousness. That's what Paul talks about. 
Now, Drusilla, on the other hand, is Felix's third uh, wife. Felix is her second husband. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of King Agrippa I. You've seen him in the Bible. She was originally supposed to marry, at six years old, mind you, a guy named Gaius Epiphanes. But Gaius did not want to get circumcised, and that was like a deal breaker right there. You're not going to get circumcised? Well, I'm not going to marry you as a six-year-old, which is probably a good thing. So instead, at 15 years old, she marries a guy named Azizus. Azizus does get circumcised for her. He is the king in a place called Emesa, which is a small kingdom in Syria at the time. But soon after she gets married to Azizus, Felix meets her, sees her. He is entranced by her beauty. And he's like, I have to have her as my wife. So Felix's friend, who claims to be a magician, says, well, I can get her for you. Just give me leave to go do it. And he goes, great, go. And he goes, and he does get her for Felix. It's just a crazy, weird, weird story. So at 20 years old, she leaves Azizus and comes to be the third wife of Felix, while she is still married to Azizus. So she's about 22 years old now when Paul speaks to both of them together. Now, it's an interesting historical fact that Drusilla had a son and a daughter with Felix, and they all died in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius exploded in 79 AD with that great eruption of that volcano. Anyway, uh, Drusilla and Felix's story are well known in the Roman Empire, and this is why Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. That's why that's so important, because Paul mentions their sin while talking about God's redemption in the person of Jesus. And what you see is that Paul's words, they hit a chord with Felix, because it says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. That is in response to Paul's words and what he talks about. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe where you're sitting in a sermon or talking to somebody and something about God's word just gets really deep in you and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, God is speaking to me. I have had people come up to me after services when we met together when there were a lot of people in the room <laughs> and, and people would come up and, and they would say, who told you about me? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, someone told you about me because that sermon was exactly about me. And I'm like, well, I wrote it a year ago, so it wasn't about you, but God works in amazing ways. There are certain things when God does things that we get alarmed in our spirit, but God is doing his work. Now, as we talk about this, I want you to see that this could really be written like it was written to somebody today, like in the church, Drusilla, who was Jewish. It's like saying so-and-so who was a Christian did these stupid things. Like today, so many people will call themselves a Christian because they were raised in a Christian family or they're born in the USA or whatever. And what this tells you is that not every Jew was actually Jewish. If you were to talk to somebody today and they said they were Jewish, if you're not Jewish, you would think, oh, they are religion. That's the religion, Jewish. But for a lot of people who are Jewish, Jewish for them just means ethnicity. It doesn't necessarily mean a belief in God at all. And here, when she says, it says she's Jewish, it didn't necessarily mean she was a follower of God. It just meant that's how she was raised. For us today, our pedigree does not make us a follower of Jesus, no matter where our family comes from. You know, maybe part of Paul's words to Felix and Drusilla was quoting what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. See, Drusilla was someone who wouldn't marry someone else unless they followed a particular part of the Jewish law. And yet, she still married someone else while not being divorced from the last person she was married to. 
And this is how religion and practical life seem so incongruent to so many people. It seems so hypocritical. See, Jesus speaks of a people who call God Lord, but don't even really live like he is actually their Lord. And this isn't a morality sermon. It's, this is a Jesus sermon. But you've got to understand all this to get where we're going and what we're talking about. I would say that there are people today in the world who want a, an intellectually stimulating faith, or maybe even an emotionally gratifying faith. I think we all want that. But do you know it's possible to want that, but not really want God in the midst of it? Like in the book Redemption, the author says, if you got to heaven, you know, whatever you think that is, and you had everything you ever wanted there, all the, all the people that you lost and loved, and they're all there, and all the things, but Jesus wasn't there, would you be okay with that? And a lot of us say, oh, if Jesus wasn't there, I wouldn't be okay. But actually, most of us, if we're really, really honest, we'd be like, well, yeah. Because most of the time, we use God to get what we want, and we don't actually trust Him for who He really is. Because if we really want Jesus in our life, we will give up, a, give up our will to Him. We will love Him. And that shows the difference between someone who's actually trying to use God to get things that we want versus someone who's really trying to serve God. And again, that service comes out of understanding what God did to first love and save us. I have had conversations with people who say they want all the benefits of following Jesus. Like they want power and meaning and hope and love and grace. But then they say, but I wonder if it's all going to pay off if I really try God. Like those dumb bumper stickers, you know, try God. And it's sad because we made a relationship with God all about ourselves and not about who he is. I mean, we have to understand what God has already given us, what God has already done for us in the person of Christ. Drusilla was a religious person. And most religious people respond just like she does. Like, I'd love to have God's promises in my life. I'd love to have all these things. But I don't want to be in a position where I don't get to decide for myself whether I want to tell the truth or whether I want to forgive somebody else or whether I want to sleep with or marry Felix or not. I don't want to be in a decision in a place where I don't get to decide for myself what I want to do when I disagree with God. And in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching to people who are probably orthodox in doctrine. They're probably emotionally involved in the things they're doing. They're probably deeply involved in service, but they've never surrendered their will. They never understood what it really means for God not to be just their friend, but the Lord of their life. And neither had Drusilla. And maybe this is what freaks Felix out a bit. The idea that a relationship with God is real. It is true. It, it can actually happen. But when it does, it changes us completely. It changes completely. See, the idea of the message of the Christian gospel is that in the end, a Christian is someone who surrenders their will. I think a real follower of Jesus is not necessarily more moral or more self-controlled than a religious person, but I think a Christian becomes teachable because the Holy Spirit brings that about in us. It makes us teachable. I was talking to one of my friends last week, and, they, and we each have this friend that we knew years and years ago, and my friend said, man, that guy is the worst example of a Christian I have ever met. And it's totally true. It, it is totally true. But the thing is, should Christians be more moral than other people? Of course we should. Should we be more self-controlled? Of course we should. Should we be, we be more willing to admit when we're wrong? Of course we should. But those things don't save us. We, we should be able to do that. We should be the people who are quickest to repent, and not to judge other people who have messed up and repent themselves. So what I'd like to do before we continue into the rest of this message is put this slide up for you right now that asks two questions. You can pause this and journal it, maybe take care of your kids, whatever you got to do right now. But here's my two questions. Number one, do you tend to focus more on morality or on Jesus? 
And my second question is this. How quick are you, are we all, to repent and offer grace to those who most need it in our lives? So those are my two questions. So if you want to pause and do that there, I'm going to keep going though. So there's this little scene in 1 Samuel 15. And it really shows the difference between religion and surrender. In 1 Samuel 15, God comes to King Saul and he says, you got to go to battle against the Amalekites. And when you do that, you are going to win. And when you win, I want you to destroy all of their livestock. Just, just kill it all. Now, that doesn't make sense to our modern ears because we think, what do the animals do? Sure, go to war with people, take out the people. But, but why, why take all those animals out? What you have to understand in ancient wars, it is all about empire building. When you won, you brought everything in, consolidated it, and your kingdom then got bigger. Kind of like a Monopoly or something. You're just taking everybody's places and taking their money. It's just getting bigger and bigger. So God tells Saul, his king, I don't want you to wage war like everyone else. I don't want you to be like all those other kings because this is not about empire building. You are going to have to go to war with the Amalekites, but it's going to bring about justice to an unjust people. And so God says to Saul, I will not have you use force the way the Amalekites use force. I will not have you use force against them for profit. You do not get to take slaves and livestock and other capital. You don't get to profit from this terrible but necessary act of justice. And so God says, I want you to destroy all those things. But what Saul does in the end was he keeps the best for himself, the wealth of the Amalekites. And he keeps their leader as his prisoner. Saul didn't like the idea of surrendering all this plunder. He didn't think it was practical. And so Saul says to himself, why kill all this livestock? So he keeps it. And if you went and you asked Saul, hey Saul, do you love God? Saul would say, oh, of course I love God. But Saul never surrendered his will. Because when his will and God's will came into conflict, he went with his. The prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, Saul, the Lord told you to destroy the livestock of the Malachites. I hear all these sheep making all this sound. So why didn't you do it? And Saul looks at Samuel and gives a very religious answer. He says, well, I thought we could offer them as sacrifices to the Lord. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't God love that? And Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Do you know what the prophet just said? He said, Saul, you are a fool. You are a fool. God didn't want the sheep. God wanted you. And because you kept the sheep, you've kept yourself. Saul would be a guy who said, Lord, Lord, haven't I done great things in your name? I I took out the Amalekites like you wanted me to. And God says, it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who enters the kingdom of God, who lives in that kingdom of God. It's the one who surrenders the will and surrenders, surrenders their life. That's the sign. James Farrell wrote this book called The Peace Giver. And this is what he writes in this book. He says, The predicament of sin is much bigger than the fact that we commit sinful acts. It is that by doing, we corrupt our hearts and become sinful ourselves. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, dark. Precisely when we are most sinful and therefore most in the need of repentance, we least feel the desire or need to repent. This is the predicament of sin. What is required is not just a cessation of sinful acts, but a mighty change in our hearts. Unfortunately, knowledge for the mind is never enough to break from the chains of sin. I mean, there's a great quote in there. Precisely when we are most sinful and therefore most in need of repentance, we least feel a desire or need to repent. 
It is interesting that Drusilla in her life with her son and her daughter, they perish in that eruption of Mount Vesuvius in, in Pompeii because no one heeded any of the warning signs. There's historical and geological evidence that shows leading up to the eruption, there were plumes of smoke and earthquakes and gas and all these things, but nobody recognized them for what they were. And as a result, the vast majority of the people in Pompeii perished. In a similar way, Drusilla fails to act upon the warning signs that Paul has given to her about where she is. She heard the message about repentance and forgiveness, but she fails to heed it. And as a result, her own soul undergoes another type of Mount Lucivius. And instead of allowing Christ to free her from her chains to sin, she was buried by them. And I think Paul understands Felix and Drusilla's need based upon what he knew about them and especially after talking to them. Felix and Drusilla, they most likely came to Paul in order to be entertained. Uh, They know Paul is just a brilliant theologian, so they probably have a bunch of questions for him to see what he's going to say, and they'll take those answers back and talk to their friends over drinks as they make fun of Paul in some way. I mean, they probably show up and they're probably like, so Paul, what happens to people in the world who've never heard of Yahweh, who never heard of our God? Can they be saved? Are they going to hell? And what's hell like? Or what's heaven like? Can you tell us about the dinosaurs? What about the dinosaurs, Paul? All the things that people today use to try and, you know, I don't want to really talk about God being Lord of my life. Let's just talk about these extraneous things out here. But Paul gets their, their attention by a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the good news of what Jesus did? Jesus came to rescue us. And looking how Paul normally spoke to others, he most likely emphasizes if they put their faith in Christ, their lives would change. And again, that's the problem with the religious people. Most religious people don't really want their lives to change. Most of them don't feel bad for their sins because most of them don't think they're sinning at all. And if they do think they sin, they want to work it off in their own timing, in their own way, doing all these religious things. Lord, Lord, haven't you seen all the wonderful things I'm doing for you? But Paul understands their vain pursuits. He understands how they look for love in the wrong places. He understands their sleepless nights because he lived it too. And so he tells them how Jesus can make a difference. And it is why when discussing the theology of personal salvation with them, he talks about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. He probably reminds Drusilla, again, who's Jewish, of God's holiness and his call to his children because she would know that. Maybe he even quotes himself, Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He probably tells them how only through God's Spirit will we ever live a life of self-control. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5:22 and 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As a good Pharisee, he probably tells them that they cannot escape divine accountability in the coming judgment. But the coming judgment he keeps talking about came to fruition in Jesus himself. He most likely pointed out that God doesn't only just judge our outward actions, but also our hearts. Paul does not soft-serve the truth to them. Kent Hughes says, Preaching the gospel, the good news, must include the lostness of man, or we are not preaching the authentic gospel of Christ. What he says is, if you want to preach the good news, you also have to preach the bad news. Why are we in the predicament that we are? What is sin? What have we done? This is why sometimes a lot of people who don't understand the bad news of why we need to be saved will say, well, why can't God just forgive sins? 
Why doesn't God just wing and be like, oh, that's good. Why did Jesus have to die? It's because we don't really understand the bad news of how bad sin is to understand how gracious the good news of God's rescue actually is. And I think Paul says what he does to Drusilla and Felix because they're searching for something in their life and they haven't been able to find it in themselves. And all this talk about self-control and righteousness and judgment, Paul will take them to the foot of the cross because that's where he always goes because that's where the gospel always has to go to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which is what Paul constantly says, which is also, by the way, why Paul is actually in prison in the first place. Paul doesn't preach righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment because he thinks we're saved by those things. He uses those things to point to the reality of Jesus. How do we get out of our own morality and out of our own headspace, out of our own religiosity? In Galatians 5.24, the NIV, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Meaning, instead of chasing all the effects of what our sins bring about in our lives, what we need to do is kill the flesh because then the sins that come out of it will die. Well, how do you kill it? It's not by being moral. It is by belonging to Christ. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's how you do it. What he means is that God will change us. God will even teach us how to love him back. And the more that we love him, the more our flesh begins to die. Our goal as Christians is to get close to Jesus. Because out of that, this righteousness and self-control will come. Our problem too often is that we are too preoccupied with ourselves to truly understand what loving God really looks like. I know people who used to be self-proclaimed Satanists and atheists and meth addicts and drug dealers, and they started to love Jesus, and the more that they loved Jesus, the further they got from their sin. And Paul says this love for Jesus comes from the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. When we hear someone like Paul talk about righteousness and self-control, our natural reaction is to go to places of religiosity, to go to places of morality. And what we try to do with other people is we want to be Jesus to them. Well, I'm holier than you are, so this is what you should do, instead of us actually just learning how to be with Jesus. See, God is not a concept. He's a person we live with. And if we live with Jesus, we will end up being like him. When we try to be Jesus on our own, that's a work of the flesh. Trying to tell everybody else how to be moral around us is a work of the flesh, and it always fails. But being with Jesus is a work of the Spirit. Do we even know how to be like Jesus? No. Does the Spirit of God? Yes. Do we know all of our deep flaws? Maybe some of them, but not all of them. But the Spirit of God knows all of them. And He will come and lead us and teach us and guide us and propel us towards Jesus. And this is why I would say at the end of it all, a mark of authentic Christianity is understanding what the gospel is. And that will lead to a grasp of the grace of God. We understand that our righteousness is found in Jesus alone. What He has done to rescue us and save us and bring us to Himself. And I think when we understand what that rescue is, then we no longer want to be unrighteous. Uh, We want our actions to be self-controlled. And we understand if there's anything that is a coming judgment, it does not affect our salvation in any way because we already belong to Him. At the end of Matthew 7, after Jesus says those words about being in the kingdom of God, He actually ends the whole Sermon on the Mount talking about two houses. And on the outside, these houses will look exactly the same. Uh, uh, they, They have orthodox doctrine, service, teaching, ministry. You'd think that they're the exact same house, except one is built on rock, a solid foundation, and one is built on sand, its own morality. 
And the only way you tell what it's built on is when the world buffets those things with COVID-19 and fires and lightning strikes all over the place and we don't know what to do. And how people respond to that shows what your foundation really is. Because if your foundation is you and your own morality, your house crumbles. But if your foundation is on the solid rock of who Jesus is, we are sure, no matter what comes our way, sure we have hard times, sure we don't understand what goes on throughout the mystery, sure we don't know what God's doing at the end of all this, but we know who has rescued us and saved us. And we trust Him through all of it. And I think what that means is as believers, Christians are those who know that we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. And what that does is it stops us from having to be everybody's moral agent around us. We can simply start to be a people who live out in this world, speak the truth of the gospel like God calls us to, by offering His grace. That means when we speak of the gospel, we do talk about the bad news. It's okay to talk about the bad news of, of how bad we messed up and what our sin is. But only if we move to the place of talking about what the good news truly is and what it brings. And this is why at Element, you know, we, we, after the message, we always talk about this thing called communion. And I understand it's a little weird and awkward, you know, not being in a room with other people and having it directly in front of you. And if you would like someone to maybe talk to you about communion and what that looks like and walk through it with you, you can send an email to connectourelement.org. We, we would love to be able to call and kind of walk you through that. But it's the idea of, of taking bread or a cracker and grape juice or wine, and you put those things together as a remembrance of what the gospel is. It is Christ's body which was broken for us, and His blood that was shed for us, that takes away our sin, which is the announcement of the good news, because we can be saved. And it brings us back to God Himself. And that's what we experience in this thing that we call communion. It's a reminder. That's what Jesus says. Do it in remembrance of me, of what I've done, of what the gospel announcement really is. And that's why we do it. If you need prayer today, maybe you're in a place where you are just stuck so deep in your own morality and your world is falling apart and you love someone to pray with you about what real grace is. Well, we'd love for you to let us pray with you. You can, again, send an email to connectorelement.org. You can put a comment on the side of the live stream if you're watching that here. Uh, We'd love to be able to get a hold of you. One of our elders will contact you and and pray with you. We are also people who are called to give. And again, that's a little different in this whole COVID situation. And on our website, you can give. But we simply give because God gave so much to us. It's a response that God calls us to be a generous people in the world in which we are. So we continue to be that generous people. Again, always as a response. Not to you know, be more moral in our giving than other people, but simply a response. That's how we live our lives. A response to the good news of the grace of the gospel. Because our God has come to rescue and save us. And I would invite you, you know, this week to take some of the, the questions that we have that you'll get in the U version. If you would like a you know, PDF copy sent to you. You can also connect our element.org and we'll send you a copy of that. You can get it. And maybe take some of those questions and talk to one another. Especially questions about are we focused more on Jesus or our own morality? And, and how quick are we to offer people grace and forgiveness when they repent? Now, how, how do we as a people begin to actually live out the understanding of the great grace that we have received? Do we, li- do we live like religious people like Felix and Drusilla? Or do we live like people who have been saved by the grace of God, who offer that same grace to the people around us? Because that's who God calls us to be, a people of grace. So let's be those people. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would take us as a people and have us understand 
not just what we have been rescued from, but what we've been rescued to. That we get to be a people who live out in this world as your hands and feet. And that we would accurately represent who you are. That we wouldn't be so preoccupied with our own morality or our own comfort that we would seek to uh, stop seeking what you've called us into in our lives. That our hearts would be laid bare before you to surrender all that we are to you. To live a life where our wills are surrendered as a result of what you have done to rescue and save us. I ask that you teach us to be a people who have our hearts and our minds wrapped around the understanding of the announcement of your good news of your rescue. And that would then, in turn, change how we live and how we speak, how we treat one another, and our countenance in the world around us. Teach us not to be a religious people. Teach us to be a people who live by your grace in this world so that you are honored and glorified in all things as we lift you up in all things. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.